0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the European VC podcast. I am David, and as usual, I am joined by my dear co-founder, Andreas. Today, we are welcoming Colin Damon Hanna. Colin is a partner at Balderton, and I think it goes without saying that I need not introduce this firm. But just in case someone's listening in that has just started in venture, I'll say that in the two decades since Balderton's founding, they have worked with hundreds of extraordinary European founders and have raised eight funds totaling more than €3 billion, with a B. At Balderton, Colin invests in purpose-driven, product-focused founders spanning verticals including cloud, consumer, crypto, and fintech. Colin has led the investments into Tesseract, Ori, Supernormal, and AnyType, as well as Clue, which I almost forgot there. Colin is also part of the team at Balderton that's responsible for driving the firm's sustainable future goals initiatives. If you're listening in, love our show, drop us a review, and follow the pod. And don't forget to subscribe at u.vc Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, 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 values.
1: United and determined we can serve as a
0: model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings.
1: Let's start acting, acting,
0: acting, acting, acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured.
1: All right, Colin, let's start this thing off with how you got into venture. Tell us all about it. First of all, I just wanted to
2: uh, thank David and Andreas. Thanks for having me on the show. I love what you guys are doing. Great energy you're bringing in, and uh, my journey into venture, I guess you know, began really when, when I started my career, I had, I had just graduated from university on the East coast. I was 21 years old. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I had, you know, a lot of the community from, from my university of Princeton, we're kind of moving to New York city and I'd grown up in Asia and I got this opportunity to join, to join Goldman Sachs, kind of focusing on an Asian specific share sales desk. So we were kind of helping to sell IPOs and and, and stocks that were mostly kind of Chinese internet companies and Japanese gaming companies. And so I started working there when I was pretty young and, you know, got kind of familiar with the information superhighway, of the financial services industry. But I just felt like the abstraction layer was kind of too high for me. It was, a, you know, it was all about kind of numbers and ratios and multiples. And it was good to have that, that lens. But I was really kind of missing the feeling of uh, what were these actually underlying businesses? What do they feel like? Who, you know, who is, who is operating them? what were the challenges they were confronting every day. And so, you know, pretty early on, I kind of decided I wanted to do something that was kind of closer to the bare metal, so to speak. And it, it took me a little bit of time, but three years into it, I took sort of took a leap and, and moved to Berlin uh, in 2014 and started working at different software companies. And that was the moment when I, so I started working at software companies and doing a bit of growth work and product work. And, I, you know, I got to spend a few years doing that. And and it, what, what what came to me at that point was, the Venture was this really kind of great blend of the financial abstraction layer, as well as really kind of the the operating and the product work and working with the engineers and on the software side. And so uh, I kind of set my sights to be doing that. And got a little bit sooner than I expected, you um, was able to join Balderton seven years ago,
0: 2000, 2016. Colin, I can't help but... Ask you Because I remember when we first exchanged emails, I went on a a bit of a rabbit hole of seeing all the little links that you had in your signature and seeing a really interesting, I'm not sure if I'm using the right term, you will correct me, a small test documentary. (laughs) Could I call it that about Asia? What what is the connection to Asia? Because you just shared also that you started your career in that part of the world. So I'd love to ask you that personal but also professional question.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's, yeah, I have this. I have this. YouTube, actually, it was my. Mo- I think my mom has gone through my ar- archives of our old like family video footage, and she <laughs> she went through she, a spell and she posted some on YouTube. And this particular video is like, it's like an hour and a half of footage, of a family trip we took when I was like ten or eleven, and we traveled to Guilin, which is sort of in uh, central southern China, and I was like loving you know, being a cameraman. So I, I sort of filmed <laughs> the whole trip and, and it was interviewing people and giving commentary on it. Uh, and so I have a link to one of those, but essentially the background is David that, I mean, basically six months after I was born, my parents moved to Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, so I was six months old and my, my father was working at the world bank. And so I spent the first five, five years of my life in, in Jakarta. And after that, my father who's an economist, started doing research for banks and, and moved to Hong Kong. When I was, we moved to Hong Kong when I was five, and so for the next decade or so, I lived in Hong Kong. So the first 15 years of my whole childhood was 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 in Asia.
1: I'm curious because we hear so much about China these days. How do you? How's your relationship to China now? Do you go back once in a while? Is it is it tourist destination number one for you, or 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 less so?
2: It's yeah, my it's 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 a complex relationship because it's 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 partly where I'm from. Um, I identify as a Californian because that's my family and that's sort of where the roots of our family are. But you know, really growing up, I, I grew up sort of on yeah in in, in Hong Kong, um, on the, in the hills and streets of Hong Kong. And Indonesia is sort of this place. If you kind of before you're five, I think you have a lot of formative years. I'm seeing that now with my young kids, but you know, it's hard to kind of consciously recall them. But I think they shape who you are. In pretty profound ways. So actually, I, I go back to Indonesia quite frequently. I come as, as much as I can. Um, I'm just sort of I think you know, the culture there and and it, Indonesia as a country, the landscape, the the wildlife. You know, a, a lot of it is I think yeah just just really magnetic. And Hong Kong, I, I went back and kind of celebrated my engagement back there. I've traveled there, and I still have friends who who live there. A lot of a lot of my friends sort of went and did university, maybe in England or in the U.S., but then I moved back to do their careers there. It's obviously changed a lot as a place since the 1990s when I grew up there. But it's sort of it's a whole different universe, right? It's a whole different world. And and too often, I think the two worlds sort of are separate from one another. And so I think I I, I think it's important as we sort of enter the next couple of decades and that that. You know, I, I continue to try to kind of have a, a strong connection, and and so, uh, you know, m- I guess the, what my only comment would be what, would be, what we hear in the media and and the people's perception, a lot of that is sort of government to government, and I think it's really really important. Like if you go onto the streets of Beijing or the streets of Hong Kong, you're going to find people you know, just like us, right? And in, in terms of what they're interested in, what they're worried about. Uh, and maybe it's a slightly sort of different framing context, but, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're worried about just the same things and the dynamism there is really infectious. So I, I try to get back as much as I can, really.
1: And then Berlin, why the hell?
2: So Berlin was totally off the map for me, for sure. So Berlin, you know, here I was, this, um, a Californian who grew up in Asia and sort of, you know, home was probably somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. Hawaii would have made a lot of sense. um you know just in terms of crossing the two and and Berlin and Europe was completely off the map and and you know no kind of family connections really or anything and I think that was probably part of the appeal of it is it felt like an adventure it felt like a new frontier and I moved there I was I was 24 and the other thing that had a lot to do with it was a a woman that I just met like a a year a year before and we would met in New York City and she decided to to move back to Berlin. And, and I thought, you know, I, I, I kind of mentioned that I, I, I hadn't wanted to stay at an investment bank and I kind of wanted to mix up my career and, and do something more operational. And And Berlin at the time was a very different kind of startup ecosystem than it is now. It was much smaller, but it was, it was, it was high quality. Uh, you had, you know, Rocket and companies like SoundCloud and ResearchGate that had sort of you know, get, getting started, um, but it was still a fairly small and kind of concentrated ecosystem. And I got to kind of dive right in in 2014 and found a job for myself. So, you know, between her and and kind of the career opportunity, I just took a kind of blind leap of faith and went and went for it.
1: I love how that love can take us anywhere. <laughs> so, so I think that, that 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 is the note I want to go to to the take a stand round with.
0: Take a star.
1: So now, Colin, I would love to ask you to comment on this quote by Daniel Kiberkenor from Speed Invest.
0: But if you need luck to become successful, then you might rather restart.
1: Yeah, this is a fun, you know, I got to
2: read that quote and I know Daniel quite well. But it's one that, yeah, I guess I fundamentally disagree with. Um, (laughs) And the reason I fundamentally disagree with it is just because I think, uh, look, luck always plays a role, in my opinion. And it doesn't mean that you can't, do the best and work the hardest on the on the factors that you control and you should, right? Because anything that you can control, you need to try to optimize it and work hard at. I'm a big believer, like after a swimming career of just hard work and pure effort creates results and outputs. At the same time, there needs to be a recognition that like you can't control and you can't influence every factor. And almost the definition of luck for me is actually things that you can't control or you can't influence, like how do they net out for you? You, you need to be lucky sometimes. I think you know, people need to have the kind of humility to recognize my success doesn't come just purely from my own input, right? That there's a recognition that sort of other things align to allow me to be successful. I, you know, look. I, I'm a I'm I'm a bit of a amateur poker player. I, I I enjoy playing poker. And there's a great book, um, written by a woman named Annie Duke. And Annie Duke is you know, one of one of the most successful poker players in the world. And she dropped out of her psychology PhD to become a professional poker player and wrote this book called Thinking in Bets. And Thinking in Bets is really about you know, understanding decision making when you have to combine sort of the role of skill and luck, right? And poker is a great game that way because you can be really skillful and you can lose the hand. You can make the right call on any given sort of bet and still lose the hand uh, and, and in fact lose several hands and, and lose the tournament or etc. And it doesn't mean that you're not better than the other person, but you know, sometimes you just, it just doesn't break your way. And so yeah, that's, I, would, you know, I would just take a stance on that, that you need to work hard, you need to be persevering, but you need to sometimes also to recognize the role of luck
0: so to the attentive listener here i'm gonna mix up our standard script because i want to go straight into talking about biggest learnings with colin we had a pre-chat here that i'm kind of sorry we don't have it recorded but colin let's start things off by just asking you to share with us the three biggest learnings from the last 10 years in your life and that includes balderton but of course other stuff as well yeah the first one i'd actually put is just uh, having a clear
2: sense of purpose, you know, why are you doing what you're trying to, to 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 do? So, if you're an investor, why are you an investor? And if you're investing in specific companies, really, why are you investing in that company? If you're a founder, what purpose did you have for founding that company, right? And I think like a clear understanding of purpose for yourself makes it easier to attract great people to do what you're doing because they can get that that clear purpose can be infectious. It can, it can make people, you kind of put your heart on your sleeve in terms of people saying, look, I identify with that purpose, so I want to join you in it. I want to sort of help you achieve that. And so the clarity of purpose, I think, is, is, is fundamental. The second kind of learning is just prioritization. I think once you have that clarity of purpose, and this is something my, my dad drove home to me a lot, and now having become a father and with the demands of time that being a parent sort of uh, presents you with... Having really, really, really clear prioritization and knowing for yourself, look, when I wake up in the morning, these are the things I need to achieve today. And these things, like, it'd be great if I achieve, but maybe I won't get to them. And these things, frankly, they're not important. And just being very, very almost ruthless in terms of prioritization for yourself. It becomes becoming a parent sort of raises the stakes for that. And I think overall, though, you can kind of carry that, that lesson of prioritization back to your work and say, look, I have a, sort of, like a much clearer vision of, of what I need to do and what I don't need to do. And I think that can help you become really, really effective. And so prioritization is really, really key. The last piece and this has come, you know, similarly at work, I think as you take on more responsibility and you start maybe leading a group of people sometimes, or if, you know, you're a parent and you're working with your partner on how to raise the kids and, and, and do so kind of in, in an environment that is, that is fun for everybody, which is, which is not always easy. The last point is communication and communication, communication, communication. It's like, I, I really believe you, you can't over communicate things. I mean, it's it's really, I think, so rare that the person you're speaking with really fully understands exactly what you're trying to get at and why you're trying to get there. And so I think just over communicating, whether that's people you work with, your colleagues, maybe people who might report to you, your partner at home, communication is so vital to sort of making sure, like, if, for example, if you're prioritizing something, like making sure that you communicate to people, why are you prioritizing it in that way? Like, why why is this thing falling off the list for you? And you kind of take it for granted so often, maybe you're moving really, really fast that you don't slow down to communicate this to your colleagues or your teams or your partners. And, and so communication is really key. So it's purpose, prioritization, and communication, which, like, you know, they, they seem pretty general and, and, and pretty obvious, but I think that they're all really, really vital.
1: Couldn't agree more. And I, we had a conversation about parenthood in, in this connection just before. And, and we will go back to that because I think it's every time I had a VC conference, it's probably also connected to the mindset of an investor there. <laughs> we, you know, we're always like, ah, I, sh- I actually wish I was home, but <laughs> now we're here and let's talk about being home <laughs> or not being home. But we'll get back to that. But I just wanted to maybe ask you to, and, and we didn't introduce Balderton too much in the beginning. So just to make sure that 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 everyone's on the same line, I'll ask you or challenge you a bit to also put this in the context of, of Balderton and being an in an investor at your stage. So, so if you could start by saying, Purpose, how does that fit into Balderton? How does it fit into the stage at which you invest and and kind of then you know go go through that train of thought for for each of the three because I think that, that that's an interesting perspective because the majority of the investors in Europe are of course smaller funds and, and, and also earlier stage than you no i I'd, I'd love to do that so you know first of all at, at Baldwin,
2: we we view our purpose to be the partner of choice for the best European entrepreneurs. You know, one thing that's that's there that I, that I like as a clarity is that we're focused on Europe. There's a lot of European funds, but not of our scale. And there's a lot of funds at our scale that aren't focused on Europe. And so, we, you know, we try to be a, a fund that can back founders in their journeys, you know, from from C to Series C and plus. But we really, really wanted it bounded by the best European founders. You know, that's our purpose. I think, you know, for me, I, David kind of read a little bit of my bio and, and the founders and companies that I'm looking to invest in are also often just really, really deliberately purpose-driven uh, in, in terms of what they're trying to achieve. You know, they're, they're not out there necessarily just to kind of be monetarily successful. They're out there to like, you know, make a serious impact on the world in a certain way. And it's, you know, it's up to them to define what that impact might be. And, you know, maybe you agree with it, maybe you don't. But I think people who have that mentality do a great job of, again, of just uh, like collecting the best team, collecting the best investors, and and really... Yeah, having a product or a service that really just makes a difference for a
1: specific reason, right? I think that's really, really important. Could I challenge you, Colin, to give us an example of how you've seen that play out in, in, in one of the, the companies? As an example, I guess I imagine that Clue would have a very special mission and resonance with, as an example, many, many employees, but also a whole community that's built around, you know, women sharing the app with each other and so on. And also Add a few words, we might have some in the male audience that wouldn't know what Clue is. <laughs> yeah, so Clue, Clue is, is really the
2: most successful, most respected uh, female health companion app. Uh, and their purpose is like no myth, no, no taboos to empower every woman or any person with a cycle to make kind of data driven decisions about their own health right and you know there's there's huge examples of the healthcare system that sort of you know that, that when they when they when they test for particular pharmaceutical drugs you know they don't take into account the cycles of women um, they don't you know clue is clue is collecting this huge kind of longitudinal data set that that really informs each individual user about the own health choices they make. And then they never sell that data on to anybody like some other, you know, apps in the ecosystem have have been known to sort of sell the data to Facebook and others. And Clue is, you know, kind of Berlin-based, super data privacy concern and super just mission-driven in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Another example would be Alan and Charles at Tesseract, which is now called Fuse Energy, that they wanted to build, like, for the UK. they, They had vertically integrated energy companies in the 1990s, but they wanted to build sort of the first fully vertically integrated UK energy company that was going to be 100% renewable energy powered. Right. So none of this stuff about buying a credit, but actually, you know, we're going to make sure that we're going out there and, you know, building solar farms, you know, wind turbines, doing commercial grade uh, rooftop solar. And that kind of clarity of vision and purpose is what's attracting like fantastic talent to go work with them. You know, the, yeah, they, they just, they just have phenomenal kind of caliber of operators that want to join because, that that clarity of purpose is, is infectious. The last company maybe I'll work with or call out is a company called AnyType. Uh, Jana and Anton, you know, started off trying to create sort of a a really, really modern and, and fresh feeling productivity suite that was actually still kind of user owned in terms of your end data. So you weren't hosting anything on the cloud. You were doing everything locally. It meant that it sort of didn't ever what happened to that matter what happened to that company if they ran out of funding, you always sort of retained ownership over your own data, which is technically, technologically, very, very hard to achieve, and also really important in countries like, you know, Russia, China, or Iran, where you know you kind of have an inherent distrust of uploading something to the cloud, where you know it might be able to be sort of uh, moderated or, or 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 monitored. And so um, that local-first mentality is, is is really something that's imp- really important to them. That censorship resistance. So just some examples of that. But I will, you know, what I would say is. Yeah, frankly I, I just read Musk's biography from cover to cover from Walter Isaacson and it's you know he's he's obviously the, you know become this, kind of this larger than life character but when you read the biography one of the key things that comes through is like he doesn't you know you don't understand that every decision I've ever made about SpaceX including Starlink and everything has has been through the clear prism of bringing humanity to Mars. It's like SpaceX exists to bring humanity to Mars. That's it. Every decision, it's, you know, all the contracts they sign with NASA, et cetera, it's all about having the resources and capital and, and sort of equipment available to bring humanity to Mars. And, like, I, I think in the world we're living in now that's so well-connected and, and so people can be so transparent with one another, that clarity of purpose is something that, you know, people want to go work with.
1: If you want to join that purpose or join that mission, you know, you know where to go work, Right. Now I'll reveal that I'm a bit of an audiobook guy because <laughs> I'm about to say that I have two hours left and I don't know how many pages that converts into, but I guess with a lot of traveling, that makes sense, right? But I'd love to ask you because that book has definitely stirred some thoughts in my mind. And I think that one of the standout quotes for me is on on Musk's personality is for, you know, from people who have decided not to work with him anymore because they they just couldn't. They said that this type of individual is probably one who we need to just allow to be as he is. If and, and that's if that's the trade-off we need to make to get have Tesla and, and SpaceX and the boring company and so on, then that, that that that's the price we have to pay as a society. But he is definitely not Leading with the type of humanity that I'd say that we in Europe at least tend to kind of weigh very highly, so I'd love to get it, you know your take on that because it it is some stories that are really thought provoking to hear.
2: Yeah, my sense is, is kind of reading it as an investor was he's someone who's willing to sort of gamble everything and throws himself fully into the things that he does, and that's an admirable quality. And he's, and he's not willing to accept convention, right? He's, he's, he's not willing to sort of say, just because it hasn't been done before, it can't be done. You know, the way that they approach standards, for example, that sort of you don't quote a standard unless you know exactly why it was created and by whom it was created. At the same time, I'd say a couple of things. You know, it's evident that, you know, his sort of lack of empathy means that his ability to retain the best people over periods of time it suffers pretty you know, pretty clearly, I think, from that. And, and there's a lot of anecdotes in the book that sort of demonstrate that. So you, you want people who are working with more empathy. And it, generally, I think you want people who have that much power in the world to have more empathy. I mean, I think that just like, it just kind of feels intuitive. The, the second thing I got that sense from the book is that he's completely overstretched himself. I mean, he throws himself fully, but you can't throw yourself fully into seven or eight things simultaneously. I mean, Jobs was, you know, I like Isaacson's biographies, and Jobs was very kind of self-reflected on the period of time that he was leading both Apple and Pixar as being a time that sort of really drained him and and probably, you know, he he attributes to when he got pancreatic cancer, the stress of sort of trying to run two great companies like Pixar and Apple at the highest level. And, you know, one can imagine that sort of trying to run all those companies at a high level, and, and you're seeing it, right, I, I, to some degree, I think. So, so you, you know, you'll need to have people that you can trust in this, in, 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 each place and to have the empathy to have them, you know, want to stay with you. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of qualities that he has that sort of are superstar like qualities that everybody will be attracted to, but yeah, it, it's sort of a mixed bag, right? It's a mixed bag. And he makes the point in the book, I think quite well, that it is a mixed bag. And there are aspects of him that, you know, we'd be better off, uh, if he didn't have those qualities and there are aspects of him that look, frankly, if he didn't have those qualities, he wouldn't necessarily maybe have been able to achieve what he's been able to achieve.
1: You've now written the whole or or read the whole book. Would you put money into every one of his company and say that's a bet on Elon Musk? Personal money? Is the question, would I put money into every one of his bets? Or is the question,
2: if I did put money into one of his bets, then it's necessarily a bet on Elon Musk?
1: Feel free to take both. But my question was to first. So would you put money in every single one of his company, put 10K in every single one of them, saying... This makes sense, or would you say, no, that does make sense?
2: No. I, I, I mean, I, so I think at least from my lens, I think you have to feel that alignment of purpose as an investor. Right? I think, you, I think as, as a founder, hopefully you, you want people around you who feel that alignment of purpose. And an investor, you should be spending time and capital on things that you feel aligned with. So I, I would say that my feelings of alignment uh, differ according to the different ventures that he has. <laughs> so right? his,
1: his Twitter, his Twitter uh, purpose might be a bit off. Yeah, well, I I mean, I just don't believe
2: that, like, the world's sort of global mouthpiece and communications network should be owned by one person fundamentally. I mean, I
0: don't think that's probably right. So, certainly, I wouldn't have backed that that bit. Colin, now I'll take us to the shout out segment. And we'd love to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, an angel, or an LP for being awesome. And of course, if you can, do share the story behind that awesomeness. That'd be great to do. One of the shout outs I'll have to give is to Point9
2: Capital. They're Berlin based. And, you know, I, I got to know both Ricardo and Louis, who are both partners there, when they were living in Berlin. And I just really admire, and I think I, I think a lot of the industry shares this, I really admire their their kind of singular sense of focus, the way that they've been able to sort of stay small, but stay excellent at what they do, even as competition has increased, you know, and, and they're seeing whether it's sort of large multi-stage firms or American firms come over and, you know, very much kind of compete with them and what their sweet spot is. But they don't let that sort of phase them. And they still go on about kind of doing the, doing the kind of deals that they're, that they're known to have done. And I think there's a lot to be said for kind of sticking to your knitting. So I'd like to I'd like to give a shout out to to Ricardo and Louis and and, and Christoph and Pavel at Point Nine.
1: So we just wanted to interject the the the, the long rode into a rabbit hole into Elon Musk (laughs) that we just did that steered us away from the three biggest learnings in your life. But I want to get back to them because you said, and just to remind our audience, you said the first one was purpose, the second one was prioritization, and the third, communication. Purpose, we spoke about clue, and, and, and we also ended there talking about Isaacson's book on Elon Musk, which definitely makes sense because he is a person who is driven by a very big purpose. And that's what's seen very much across all of his companies. There's a very strong purpose there. And in every single decision he makes, it's purpose that's driving them in the end. But prioritization, I'll give you the same challenge just as before, Colin. Tell us how prioritization informs you in your work at Baldurton. As an investor, you know, the work is kind of limitless,
2: right? You could kind of speak to an infinite, almost almost infinite number of people and, and look at almost an infinite set of companies, it certainly felt that way uh, over the last couple of years in terms of the the level of buoyancy and volumes that we were seeing in the market. But prioritization is really about, I think, identifying for yourself as an investor, you know, where are the quality bars that you're looking for things to clear in terms of the team, in terms of the depth of the market, in terms of, um, you know, the execution on the product side and kind of putting, you know, like one of these old horses that sort of has blinders on the side and putting those blinders on intentionally and saying, look, I'm just going to focus on, you know, the things that sort of meet that bar there in front of me and do the work. Because, you know, winning, winning a deal in this market in a, in, a, in a high caliber company with a really high quality team requires a huge amount of focus. And I think that focus can, can only come when you're able to sort of prioritize that small subset of companies, you know, versus the rest. And so, you know, we're, we're in a position now where I think it's, it's a precision sport. You know, you have to be really, really precise, with the investments that you make and, and precision and prioritization, I think for me kind of go hand in hand. The other thing, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of say again, you know, going back to being a parent of, of, I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old at home, two sons, and, you know, they're, they're, you know, trying to raise two young kids as, as, as a partnership, you know, requires a lot of attention and energy and time. and And so you come back to that with your work and you say, look, with the meetings I'm going to do, with the research I'm going to do, with the with the network I'm going to create, you know, I'm constantly thinking about it in terms of quality and in terms of sort of coming back and trying to level your kind of level your bar up, because you want to make sure that what that kind of network, the output of it in terms of the investments in your own deal flow, is of the highest quality. Um, so that's a little bit how prioritization kind of mm-hmm. plays in.
0: Could I ask you, Colin, to also also expand? Because I think there might be a, a lesson for many of our listeners. Obviously, m- most of our listeners are emerging VCs, right? By by default, that's what we have the most in Europe, right? And so our listeners are as well. And I'd love to hear you expand a bit on how prioritization plays a role in portfolio management for you. And I'm actually thinking specifically in terms of how you dedicate your time to the different ventures, but there might be other topics. I'd love to hear you on that.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I consider myself an emerging venture investor. I mean, I've been doing it for, for seven years, but as, as we know, the time... Time scales yeah. <laughs> are, are are drawn out and and learning loops are drawn out too, and so you need to kind of continue to feel like you're learning um, and, and i and I still very much feel like I'm ramping up in terms of managing portfolio, I think you know the key is to understand you know when whatever it is you're going to do is going to move the needle in a positive way for this company and having clarity of that versus You know, I think there is quite a lot of sort of investor interventions that are are of questionable value to the company in terms of an enduring way. And so, I think like having the humility to step back and be like, okay, my intuition is to do this, but is that the right intuition here? Like, how does that fit into what the goal of the management team is, right? And how does that fit into you know what they're trying to achieve in terms of aligning the team underneath them? And so, you know, what's, what's really great is when you can build a relationship of kind of uh, high vulnerability with the founders and they can really be candid with you about, hey, look, honestly, it wouldn't be helpful if you did this, but this is really what I need your help with, you know, now. And and like let them help you prioritize, right, to some degree. And I think that you need to have a lot of mutual trust for that kind of relationship to to develop. But if you can have that level of mutual trust, and, and then we care about a lot about that at Bulletin that we feel like, you know, we're... You know, we're we're one of the you know only investors or one of the few investors that the founder really feels like they can confide in and be vulnerable with, because that allows you then to spend your time on the things that are really going to matter for the company.
1: Very few funds have the same follow-on capacity as you do, and as such, it's very very difficult probably as a bulletin investor to be able to tell a founder we're out of cash. Or <laughs> you know, you're always thinking when you do a seat bet, you can take them all the way to see how does that influence, you know, your work and how do you think through that and and so on? Could you tell us a bit how you map that out and, and, and think of it as an investor? Because it's a very special situation to be in com- compared to most funds in Europe.
2: We debate and discuss this a lot as a partnership, I would say, firstly. And, and I think, you know, the most important thing, I, I think you have to set expectations at the outset too, that like, look, when we do a deal with a company, you know that that deal is a point in time, and you know we we invest something in exchange for something else uh, in exchange for shares uh and we're investing against sort of a plan or a future right that that we're trying to achieve together and you know any future investment is probably predicated on how well that goes right and how well we sort of are achieving that plan and and working together to get those get get that done and so there's there shouldn't be this notion, and I don't think there is this notion that sort of just because you have a fund like follow or something on your cap table that sort of you're going to be funded all the way through sort of no matter what happens. I mean, you need to execute. Hopefully what we've done well is, you know, with high conviction investing, selecting the right company that's going to that's gonna execute, you know, all the way through. But, the, you know, we, we know that it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's a hard path and, and you, you know, you need to have perseverance. You need to have a little bit of luck. You need to sort of have, you know, have things break your way. and You need to have investors in a small group of people working on the company together that are sort of working hard to make things happen. So you know what? Yeah, what I would say is, if you're transparent at the outset, it also makes it clear when when we're prioritizing. You know, we're we're not here to kind of prop up companies that aren't aren't going to be successful. And so you know, it, it makes it really clear. And I think if you if you have also that transparency and level of trust, then you know you can be clear to people. Look, you know, this this hasn't worked the way we we, we thought it would, and our priorities priorities lead us elsewhere, right? And and to do so in sort of a a, a, a candid fashion. That is not to say that that's always easy but i think if if you come at it from a a place of empathy but also a place of logic mm-hmm. so like highly logical but also highly empathetic i think usually you you kind of get to a good place
1: in the end i'd love to ask you colin and and this is on a different note and because you're arguably one of the most coveted potential co-investors or follow-on investors for many seed funds and pre-seed funds in in europe and in that connection you said it just before with regards to prioritization, exactly, how do you prioritize building your network? So I'd love to ask you. We have a bunch listening in that will all be thinking, "Huh, so, or how can I connect to Colin at a level where <laughs> he will take an extra look at my deals when I send them his way?" Could you could you tell us a bit from that perspective of of a listener thinking? I'd love to play ball with Colin. How, how, how should they think about establishing that connection to, to both Baldurton but also Colin? It's great to be building relationships and friendships and, and, and a network
2: among the other investors. It's, it's really important to do so. And a lot of times we're, collab- we're competing and collaborating in our industry. Sometimes I think it's a little bit of a sideshow. I mean, I think I, like the reality is, I think, you know, when you have investors in place, it's like, look, it's up to you to build a relationship with the founder, I'm not going to really just invest in a company because somebody's invested in the company. Somebody else is, right? It's like it's like it, the the founder and the company needs to be the central spoke, right? And and sort of the, the, the like like yeah, the, the hub, I should say. And each investor is sort of a spoke outwards, but you need to all be connected to that central hub, which is the founder, which is the purpose of the company, which is you know your depth of understanding of the company, right? So that's the first thing I sort of say at the outset. I think that the second thing is obviously having a strong network of, of, of people you trust who work within the industry can be a really helpful filtering layer in terms of, you know, when, when you sort of respect somebody's investor acumen, you know, you kind of say, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm paying attention to, to what they're doing and oh what do they see here? Maybe it wasn't apparent to me at the first go, but I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time trying to understand because I really respect their own, their own acumen and their track record. So, I, you know, what, what I would say in terms of just in general, trying to sort of build relationships with other, you know, with other investors is, you know, the best thing you can do is focus on your own book (laughs) first thing and just sort of, you know, try to build your own track record and build your own investment acumen and your own framework such that, you know, it will be apparent to people that you are someone who they, you know, they should, they should try to be connecting to and trying to sort of understand what their portfolio is. Right. And then that will come, that will happen organically
1: yeah with a lot of work, <laughs> so now you were a bit more uh specific on the communication part before, but just because we've gone through the three let's let's rehash and and give us give us the your view on communication and how that plays into to how you invest the bullet
2: yeah, I think uh, you know it it comes maybe bit, ties into something else but but we can't take for granted as i said before, we can't take for granted this that sort of everybody understands your own compute machine in your own head right and the own context that you have we are a democratic organization at, 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 Baldwin. We sort of make decisions collectively as a partnership and as an investment team. And we have sort of a big open table where, you know, it doesn't matter sort of whether you're an analyst or a managing partner, you can air your views and, and have them debated on the, on the basis of their logic. And I think that, you know, having that is, is really, really key because, you know, we, 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 we work as a team. We win deals as a team. Kind of, we grow companies together as a team and, and, and we run the firm as a team. And, and you need to do that professionally by, you know, by having really strong communication channels, by 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 discussing things collectively around the table, by kind of being available for their for you know for chats. Um, you know, we we have a culture I think where people can just kind of you know you, you get off the meeting with a founder and you just call each other or or you kind of pull each other to the side and you debrief together. One you know very very quickly. The other really important thing is is when it comes to sort of delegating and and working together as a team. And again, this is something as as you sort of you know level up and start managing people is having the clarity that everybody understands your set of goals, again, your sequence of prioritization and why that is, you you can only over communicate. And I think I, you know, like it's, it's sort of, it's sort of the ocean that sort of, you know, everybody connected to. And if, if you start to realize you haven't communicated enough, it's like a little bit too late at that point, you know, at that point the ships have sort of moved off in completely different directions and you have to sort of really work to bring them back together. But if you had sort of a a strong layer of communication in between once another and and a strong layer of vulnerability in that communication, right? Not just sort of posturing, but really telling people like, this is exactly how I think it is and showing weakness there. I think that's really, really key.
0: I love that Colin. I, I actually, yesterday I was driving and I was thinking in my mind, I was thinking, you know, that I was really thankful that my partner did something. <laughs> and then I thought, oh shit, I should verbalize it. <laughs> right? like you're, you're fucking thinking it, but you're not saying it, right? And I think it's such an important thing to keep in mind and to bear in mind professionally and personally, right? Just there's no such thing in my view as 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 over communication, right? If you if you keep on communicating, the message gets through. So I love that you brought it up and thank you for sharing. I want to ask a completely unrelated question, Colin, which is, am I right in saying that you used to be an Olympics trials swimmer?
2: I competed in the Olympic trials in the United States in 2008. Um, so that basically just meant that I, I qualified for the meet that in the United States, yeah, that meet and how you perform in that meet dictates whether or not you join the Olympic team. Uh, and I did. I, I qualified and swam in that meet. That's quite
0: high level. Competitively speaking, that's quite high level. I'm right, I'm right in saying that,
2: right? Yeah, it, it took a lot of work to get there, I'd say. It, it definitely took a lot of work to get there. And, and uh, I, I view it as, uh, as something, something I'm proud to have achieved in my life, uh, for sure. And, and it's cool also because my, my mom qualified for the Olympic trials in 1976. So uh, nice. I was able to kind of go 32 years later. Uh, and, and we both sort of have that, which is great.
0: Is that, is that something that you feel has also shaped you professionally and personally and even today as an investor? Because that's something we hear a lot from former professional athletes in whatever professional area they are, right? That, that need to be top level all the time, that need to be in the grunt every single day to be able to then perform at a specific day. I'd love to hear you expand on that, on that if there's anything there to be expanded on.
2: I feel just kind of really immense gratitude for having grown up with the, with the kind of athletic background that I had. And a lot of it, I think, actually I put to my mom and my dad. My my dad was a diver at Berkeley, the part of the great aquatic program they have over at, at Berkeley. My mom, as I said, it was before they had the institutionalized women's sports teams, So unfortunately, Title IX wasn't yet in place in the NCAA. And so she wasn't able to swim to that level in college, but she was phenomenal swimmer. And they both kind of imbued within me, just like, you know, doing all sorts of sports growing up and then really focusing on swimming as as something that I was maybe particularly had a little bit of more more talent in. A lot of life has become, you know, easier, I think, because of the trials that I sort of put myself through and and my coaches. I have a lot of great gratitude to the coaches. It's sort of you know, train me when I was, you know, starting, you know, Anne-Marie Monk when I was 13 and my mom was a coach for a while. And then Paul Stafford and Ray Mitchell with the Terrapins program. Um, and then my coach at Princeton, Rob Orr, they were all like great people who were, you know, shaped and cultivated my own character and demanded a lot out of you. Um, but did so in a way that sort of, yeah, just, I just, it, it means that sort of, you understand like there's no shortcut to swimming. Like if, if you want to get the output, you've got to have the input, yeah. like that's just how it works. It's been difficult maybe adjusting to something like, I talked about learning loops and what's, what's really great about swimming is variables are very, very tightly controlled. And so when you hit that wall and you look up at the clock, you know that, first of all, that, that's a very, very clear feedback loop. This is what I did and this is the time, right? And the second thing you know is like, it's all pretty much up to me is I don't have like a referee to blame. I don't have like a teammate who like messed up a pass or something like this. Like it is, it's like up to me, right? And so you have to take accountability and put it on your own shoulders. And, it, and swimming can be brutal that way. Swimming can be really, you, know, you can be sort of, you know, in tears, right? Uh, this happens a lot. You hit the wall and you put everything in and you're in tears because you just, you didn't achieve what you wanted to achieve. Venture investing in that sense is totally different. Because you, you, I mean, you wish you could, you know, you kind of, you invest the term, you you sign the term sheet, you look up at the wall, like
0: no (laughs) idea,
2: (laughs) right? No idea. But you have to trust, I think that, that you got to put in the inputs and you got to keep working day after day. Uh, You got to go to practice. You got to, got to, got to do the miles. And, you know, over time, you got to trust that, that that process is going to lead to the outcomes that you, that you're looking for.
0: So we had the little uh, non-vc related shout out there which i'm really happy <laughs> we managed to get in colin final question from my side before before we wrap things up is we didn't talk at all about an initiative within bulletin which is the sustainable future goals initiative right uh and i'd love to ask you to expand a bit about it but maybe more interestingly at least from where i stand this is obviously something that's somewhat connected to the SDGs, I, I venture say. And I'd love to ask you as well, personally as an investor, within the, the space of, of sustainability and SDGs, what gets you excited, right? And and really thinking from with the investment lens here. I'm, no, I'm really
2: glad we, we get to speak about it because these are something that... Um, are really, really important to us. I mean, Benah, my partner Benna, it was it was kind of 2019, 2020, and we realized we sort of need this to level up here. We're really, really lucky to have a head of impact and sustainability called Elodie Broad, who, who joined us about a year ago. But really what the SFGs, we call them as Sustainable Future Goals, are about is really, you know, it's like first and foremost, a recognition, I think, that we're all confronted with like a set of global challenges these days, right? Whether it's sort of around... How we want to govern ourselves as a society, whether it's climate change, it's the lack of biodiversity, and 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 we just wanted to get out there and say, look, we don't feel like we just are sort of a, a European venture capital firm, and we just want to sort of optimize our IRRs. That's how we measure ourselves. That's our yardstick for success. But it's not the only thing that's important to us. We we also sort of want to say we feel like we have a role to play somehow. And it's not about sort of any sort of checklist. It's it's about sort of saying, look, these are the things that we feel like we want to get behind. And so we actually use the SDGs from the UN because we thought like, you know, that's a great kind of set of humanities goals. And we wanted that we kind of interpreted them and say, well, which of these are actually important and relevant to us as a European venture firm. And we went ahead and we kind of, we, we adapted them to us and we have these 10 sustainable future goals. And, you know, Bernard's a big OKR fan and we're kind of big believers in sort of having clear metrics. And so what we did is we actually created and we, and we have full reports as sort of, very, very transparently report against these every year is we took those 10 goals, which are like urgent climate action, you know, gender equality, data governance and and data privacy are are really important, you know, these kind of big kind of lofty goals, but we broke them down into small, like, you know, smaller and smaller little bits of like small little OKRs, like how many taxi trips are we taking as an investment team every year? Or, you know, um, how many of the founders who come and present to us are women versus men, right? And we had all those metrics and we're tracking all that data and reporting against it every year. And it's a way for us just to say, look, how are we doing? It's a, it's a scorecard. It's a report card that we can kind of report against on an annual basis. And it was it was nice. Uh, I, I got the chances to hear Michelle Obama speak at Bits and Pretzels a couple of weeks ago. And and she underscored the point to me that I think sometimes gets lost, which is people are talking about ESG and whether or not, you know, things are too heavy-handed. And it's like sometimes I think you lose the, lose the forest for the trees. And what the forest is for me is like, you know, we have a responsibility to help confront these global challenges. We're going to try to do it in our own way and what's important to us. And we're just happy to be super transparent about how we're trying to go about achieving those things.
0: I actually want to wanna share some love because I I checked out the, um, the report that you guys put out. It refers to last year, right? And I think it's a really interesting read for anyone who's in the venture industry. Of course, you know, you show that you've achieved some stuff, but I like also the fact that you are transparent about what you haven't achieved. And I think it's kind of cool also how you think about, you know, companies that are actively Uh, I don't know what's the exact word you guys use, but like proactively or uh, championing exactly, that they're championing a sustainable uh, future goal. And and I think it's a good a good benchmark. So thank you for putting it out and just sharing some love there.
2: Yeah, well, that com- just really quick, that comes back to the purpose alignment, right? And I, you know, I think what we found is us being a little bit transparent and vocal and commu- over communicating about what are these missions or these goals or objectives are really important to us. It's actually helped us attract founders who I think you know feel like the companies that they're starting and what they're trying to achieve has some alignment with them. Um, so it's it's been constructive that way.
1: If you look at your portfolio of investments all all across it how many of them would you say fall within one of one of the SDGs? My viewpoint is that the reason why I love Ventures, because even, even if I'm not investing in a fund that's an impact fund, a lot of the capital in the end are going to help solve inefficiencies and, and many, many of the opportunities are somehow within democratization or open access to more things and so on. So I'd love to ask you, what is your overall view on on the state of tech, as as a broad <laughs> group represented as your portfolio, right? And whether they are a positive or negative contributor to, uh, to to betterment of society? In 2021,
2: 26 percent of the companies that presented to the investment committee were sort of definitely championing one of the SFGs. In twenty twenty two, that number went up a little bit to twenty seven percent. And I think in 2022, we invested in, yeah, uh, about, we made nine investments uh, in companies that were sort of championing one or more of the SFGs. And as a proportion of sort of new investments, that was yeah, roughly the same, I think a little bit higher proportion. So actually, you had a higher chance of sort of clearing, clearing the IC if you were especially championing them. So, and, and that sounds about right, that it's sort of like, does everybody in every company we need to invest in need to be expressly aligned with us? No. Like, that's not, we're not an impact fund you know, what we are is that we're an IRR-driven fund, we're a returns-driven fund. We feel like there's a good chance, and, and to your point, Andrea, I I really believe that, like, the best founders starting new companies in 2023, you know, are often driven by these sort of lofty, uh, ambitions from a, from a purpose perspective, and, and some of them will really align with, and some of them we won't, and that won't stop us investing in them when they won't, but it, you know, maybe it gives an extra push when they, when they are aligned.
1: I'm a bit surprised that it's only 30%, actually, uh, not, not from, a, from a perspective of, <laughs> aren't you doing more, but more from a perspective of, I would have said on the, on the, on the whole, that's also contingent on where you, where you put the bar, right? We try to keep the bar high one of the points is expressly like, it's like the the
2: founder themselves needs to be like, this is why I started this company. It can't just be like, Oh, like one of the, because there's, 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 you know, you kind of have three consultants who started a company and they're like, Oh, I could tell you about in this report, like, you know, one of the positive externalities of our business is xxx right. And if you, but if, if, if that's where the bar is, like you end up sort of creating a, a rationale or justifying every investment that you have, though it's positive because this could be one of the positive externalities. But
1: so we said expressly championing that goal, and so we want to keep that bar high. But it's pretty funny because if you asked Elon with SpaceX, is that expressly targeted uh, any of the SDGs? Probably not, right? But then he they end up creating creating Starlink, which is probably going to be one of the most important factors allowing us to to democratize access to the internet, right? yeah I, I so so you know us getting the Mars didn't make it on like, the SFGs yeah. we could argue if that was
2: sort of the wrong wrong or right but um but you know so so SpaceX sort of wouldn't qualify and and one of the externalities of SpaceX is to create Starlink but Starlink is really you know it's a it's a product
1: in the service of getting the Mars, I suppose so it wouldn't you know wouldn't yeah, that the wouldn't mean nah, nah, that's super interesting, but that also goes to show that the thirty is, percent is' definitely then 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 we're pretty sure that or seven percent then we're pretty sure that they are definitely yeah uh, STG compliant or, or STG uh, uh, ambitious. Very cool. Now let's go into the quick fire. <laughs> and now the quickfire.
0: So Colin, quickfire, quick answer questions 30-60 seconds each. What advice would you give your 10-year younger self?
2: No advice. <laughs> Uh, You know, the reality is, I, I think I've been happy with my past, both the failures and the successes, the risks I've taken. It's sort of one of those things, if you were in a science fiction book and I got into a time machine, would I go back in time and sort of, but if you, if you change one thing, who knows what else you change? You know, there might be sort of this butterfly effect. So honestly, 10 years ago, I took a big risk when I left New York and I moved to Berlin. And if I was hesitating on that, I would have taken the plunge. But you know, the reality is I took the plunge. So I wouldn't give, you know, maybe controversially, I wouldn't give
0: myself any advice. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising?
2: Yeah, people need to understand what their own uh, kind of what their own wheelhouse is. I, I often talk about like ventures like you're kind of mining gold veins, and once you find that gold vein, whether that's a particular kind of insight you have on a market or a, a smart uh, like a network that you have, double down on it. Double down on your own weirdness. Double down on your own experience set. Run against the crowd. Um, yeah, be be contrarian. Um, and, and sort of don't look over your shoulder too much. I think I think we as an industry do that too much. And that's the advice that gives any
0: emerging investors. And what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture?
1: Valuations don't matter. Dive into that one because everyone's discussing it, right? And I think that we've all just, every, or maybe I'd rather say not everyone's discussing it, but maybe rather everyone is right now running away from that statement, right? We set it all up, on, up, up, up towards you know the 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 top the peak of the of the bubble where everyone was thinking exactly what you're saying, and now I think the one thing we've heard on this show consistently since the, <laughs> since, since this. I, maybe I need to clarify. Well, what I need to, I, I, what I need to
2: clarify is um, I I don't mean that you should invest in companies regard like in independent evaluation. Just to be clear, what, what I mean is as founders and as companies and as board members and as investors. Chasing higher and higher valuations really is, is not constructive. Uh, it's it's you know these valuations are a mark that sort of one private investor has decided, and maybe the founder has agreed with that private investor, but there's very little signal in that mark. And in particular, I think the media industry are in, you know, we, we sort of chase the fundraise headlines and the valuation headlines. But you know, building an enduring important company, you know, happens over a long period of time a lot of things need to go right. And sort of whether you have a high valuation or a low valuation is really independent of a lot of those things. To be clear, as an investor, the the entry price that you pay for shares does matter. I believe that it does. But I think sort of when you're on the journey of kind of building a big company, chasing after that headline valuation and you know, you're not going to be uh, issuing, you know, hopefully too much equity over the course of the journey. So you're, you have to think about your cost of equity, but don't think about it too much. Think more about the people around the table or what it is you need to achieve to sort of yeah, really create that product and service that's going to achieve the purpose you set out to do. And the valuation is a little bit of a sideshow.
1: Thank you so much, Colin, for joining us for this episode of the European VC Podcast. To everyone listening in, do drop us a review if you enjoyed the show. Also, make sure to follow the pod and subscribe at EU
0: Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values.
1: United and determined.
0: We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New new beginnings. Let's start acting.